0: I'd like for you to turn to the 6th chapter of John, to a question that Jesus asked, and a question that follows the question, and um, a spin off of that. It's like a piece of um, tough meat, it just gets bigger as you, as you look at it. I know what you're thinking, yeah, I'm gagging on it too, but don't say it though. 6th chapter of John, verse 36. I'm at verse 66. As a result of this, many of His disciples withdrew and were not walking with Him anymore. Jesus said therefore to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered Him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a a devil? And he met Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him this um, this scene that uh, i've read is really a the uh, kind of scenes that movies are made of cinemas a director would take this scene and he would take the um, the success of the morning and he would contrast it with the absolute pitiful pitiful failure of the afternoon and the, warm, and, the, and the awesome contrast between the success of the morning and the failure of the afternoon. What's the problem here? We've got something going on. Um, it is really, um, I can't preach with doors open, so there we go. <laughs> where was I? You Remember where I was? Oh, going to be a rough, rough one tonight, I can tell. Pardon me? No. Okay, Let's, here, here we go. Um, I can see him um, early in the morning. The sun is rising over Galilee in the early dawn, and Jesus is with his twelve. They've been out in the desert all night, and they've come to the little village of Capernaum. And the streets are crowded with people. Jesus is extremely popular. This is at the apex of His career. And the synagogues are packed, and the crowds are great. And they are pressing their questions to Jesus, and the answers He was giving were not what they wanted to hear. And so little bit by little bit, they begin to trickle away all day. They would begin to leave and go home and leave Him. Until in the afternoon, late as the sun begins to set, Jesus is alone. He's just seen the last of the um, early enthusiasts leave him and head for the house, and behind him only the twelve remain. And Jesus doesn't turn around. He doesn't uh, congratulate them. Fellows, I just want to thank you for hanging in there with me. And he doesn't even allow them to congratulate themselves. He doesn't turn to them in response, I don't think. I think kind of half in soliloquy, he asked this question. You don't go away also, do you? And the reply was, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I think the rejection of these people must have cut deeply into the heart of Jesus not just because they rejected Him, and nobody likes rejection. That's the greatest blow of all is to be rejected. I think He was cut to the heart for two reasons. I think first of all because He understood that He had what these people needed at the deepest level of their life. And if they went away from Him, they went away from what they really needed to have abundant eternal life. And I think he was cut deeply to the heart in the second place because he understood that there would never be another chance, perhaps, for these. Um, I think it, these, this question that Jesus asked is a question that implies a recognition that the, the potential, the um, proclivity of each of us to desert and betray... And to uh, deny the Lord is present in everybody, in each of our hearts. I think the potential to betray and to desert and defect is present in every one of us. He began to talk about Judas. And I think he understood that, that no matter who you are or how close you are to him, there is a tendency to betray him, to desert him. Every time I invite, every time I welcome somebody into the fellowship of this church, and every time I stand in the baptistry to baptize another convert, it crosses my mind, I wonder if they can hang in there. For the um, attrition rate among Christians is horrendous. I mean, you just look around you, and... uh, Just kind of think in your mind about the number of people who walk with Him no more. And I wonder how many of us who are here tonight would be doing the same thing ten years from now. How many of us will be faithful through it all? And how many of us will be just like these at some point in time begin to drift away and go away? And I think the question that he asks deals with a deep issue. And that issue is, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? I think at the heart of this question is the need to know what it really means to be a follower of Christ. Because the events of this day make it apparent that their understanding of what following Jesus meant and His understanding of what following Him meant were two totally different things. Now, their understanding of what it meant to follow Jesus was something like this. He'll always be there if we get hungry to feed us. I mean, we saw Him feed 5,000 with loaves—a little boys' lunch, five loaves and two fishes. And if we have somebody sick, He'll be there to heal them. And if we ever get caught in a storm, He'll be there to still it. And if we fish all night and don't catch anything, He'll tell us where to fish and we can catch a load of fish. I mean, all we'd have to do is just keep Him around and we wouldn't have to fish but one night a week and we'd catch more than we've ever caught before. I mean, that was their idea. He's going to be our bread king. He's going to take care of our illness. He's going to take care of our storms. And He's going to tell us where to fish. That's not what Jesus had in mind when he said, come and follow me. Eldon Trueblood has the illustration of a person who came into town and he called an old friend and he, they hadn't seen each other for a long time and he, uh, the, the, the fellow answered the phone and he said, I'm so-and-so identified himself, I'm just in town for today, I'd like to take you out for lunch, hadn't seen you in a long time, like to buy you lunch. Is there a nice restaurant in town? Friend said, Yeah, there's a good restaurant. He said, Where is it? He? he told me, said, Well, I'll meet you there at 12 o'clock. I'm just looking forward to seeing you. So the, the guy was getting dressed, thinking, Man, what a, you know, this is my, this is my lucky day. Some, some old friend comes into town and wants to buy my lunch. When they got down to, to the place to eat, the guy really had in mind to get this guy to sign up on some kind of a pyramid Selling scheme. Now, have you ever has that ever happened to you? He he went down there, uh, anticipating, enjoying a good meal, and the other guy was meeting him there to enlist him in this sales force. Says Eldon Trueblood. Sometimes we have the idea that we're going to enjoy a meal and Jesus has the idea. He's going to enlist us in the military and He doesn't pull any punches about it. He just lets us know right up front, listen, if you come to follow me, you're not coming to follow a bread king who's going to give you all you need to eat whenever you need it. I'm I'm calling you to a commitment of your life to service. Well, what is really involved here is that is that when one decides to follow Christ, he surrenders the control of his life to Jesus Christ. And he accepts the fact that Jesus Christ becomes the manager of that life. I don't know whether you knew it or not or understood it or not, but when you walk down the aisle of this church, you were saying, in essence, I'm surrendering the management of my life to Jesus Christ. I pulled into a service station not long ago, and over the door had a sign, Open Under New Management. When you give your life to Jesus Christ, you might as well hang a sign over your heart under new management, because that's exactly what you've done. Lock, stock, and barrel, whether you really knew it or not. What is at stake here is the issue of what it means to follow Christ. It means the surrender of our life to His control. Now, the context of this event is extremely important because as they begin to talk about bread, Jesus began to talk about eating Him. He said, Unless you eat my flesh. They thought He was talking, they thought He was a cannibal. Unless you eat my flesh, unless you drink my blood, you cannot follow me. Now what he was saying, analogous to this, was the fact that when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you take Him into your life and you make His life your life. His flesh and His blood, His life, your life. I talked with a man recently, and, we, and this, this man is a, um, uh, not to identify him because we talk in private, but he's a man, quote, who is searching for God, end quote. And we talked about what it means to be a Christian, and his concept, I think, is that somehow God's going to zap him and change everything, make him feel better. And I helped him see, I think, a little bit that becoming a Christian means that I am surrendering my life to him, and his life becomes my life, and everything he taught and everything he stands for becomes what I'm to live for. I think there's a second thing here, and that is that in understanding what it means to follow Jesus, means it involves this, it means that I establish a personal relationship with Christ and develop that relationship. Now, that is implicit in the question that Peter asked, Lord, to whom shall we go? It's not where we go, where are we going to go, or to what are we going to go, but to whom shall we go? Now, Peter didn't understand everything. He was as bewildered as most of us are. He was as confused as anybody could ever be confused. But he understood that there was something special about Jesus Christ that he was willing to die for. And he understood the, in, in the final analysis, I think, what we all have to understand, that Christianity, that following Christ, becoming a Christian, whatever you want to call it, is not the embracing of a, of a, of a, um, a set of rules or the giving allegiance to some kind of creed, but it is the development of, the establishment of a personal relationship with another person. It is like getting married. It is the commitment of one's life to the personhood of another. It's like surrendering in that dialogue of life, in that that, uh, uh, relationship that's even uh, analogous of marriage. Because becoming a Christian is not keeping a set of rules. It's not saying, okay, I'll check this one off and I'll check that one off. And it's not embracing some kind of uh, theology or some philosophy. It is the establishment of a relationship with a person. Now, the phrasing of this question is significant. The New American Standard has picked up on the phrasing of it that's in the Greek New Testament. He's saying this, you aren't going to go away also, are you? And the emphasis is on the you. I mean, we have a better relationship than that, for, than that, don't we? I mean, don't we have a better relationship? Don't we have such a relationship that you could never go away from me? That's the picture. I mean, don't we understand and love each other so much that you could never walk away from me? For when you walk away and when you defect, it's like turning away from one you love and loves you. There's a third thing involved, I think, and that has to do with what you leave behind. I many times if you read the New Testament to find this? Jesus came, they left their nets, they left their boats, they left their father. Because following Christ involves leaving the old. It involves leaving behind the farmer. It involves burning your boat. When Cortez landed in Veracruz, he sent a demolition crew out into the harbor and they destroyed all their boats. Because Cortez wanted his men to know there was no going back. There was no avenue of retreat. There is no option. You don't have an option. Jesus said if you put your hand to the plow and look back, you're not fit for the kingdom. I mean, you're in this for life. It means that you leave that farmer way and you accept a new way to live. You understand that? I mean, I'm not telling you anything you you haven't already heard, but you need to hear it again. Number four, it involves this um, complete reliance upon God. It's the shoving of the chips out into the center of the table. It's the trusting of one's life to Christ. Um, Now, when Jesus started talking to them, and this context is so heavy, so difficult to understand, unless you see it as as an illustration. When Jesus was talking to them about bread, they were talking about manna that Moses put down from heaven and and got got from heaven, and, 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 and Jesus was talking about, I'm the heavenly bread that God has given from heaven. And they just went back and forth in this dialogue. And he talked to them about being their bread and being their their drink. He talked to them in essence about this. He's saying in essence that following me means that you rely on me for everything you need to sustain you. Now that doesn't mean that a person uh, would not... No longer be employed. I mean, don't, uh, don't you know, give me a break. That's, that's ridiculous. But what he is saying is this that, that following means that you're willing to completely rely upon me for what you need to eat and drink and to live. Now, the second question comes as a result of this question. And the second question is, Lord, to whom shall we go? Good question. It implies two things it implies that you're going to go somewhere. Um, it's not a matter of will we go. It's a matter of to whom we go. It, you'll go somewhere. Everybody's going to go somewhere to find life. Now, the question is, where are we going to find this life? Because there is a God-formed vacuum, Pascal says, in every man that only God can fill. And there is a hunger and a need for a bread to satisfy and, a, and water that will quench thirst. So we're going to go somewhere to find these answers to life. Um, Lloyd Ogilvie tells about the time a, a guy came into his office and sat down and they talked and he said, This has been a heartbreaking past year. I feel this dull, persistent ache inside of me that never goes away. He said, it seems like that somebody has shot a cannonball through my inner being and has left a gaping hole. Everybody in his inner being has a gaping hole. And he will have to go somewhere to find something to fill that. And Jesus knew that, and you know it, and I know it. The question is, to whom do we go for the answer for that, for the, for the filler of that hole? How about, would you go back to the farmer way? Would you go back to the way you used to be? Is, is that, I mean, Is that an option for you? I wouldn't go back there for the life. What about some ideology? Some, how about some moral ideology? How about some sensual pleasure? Is that where you're going to go to fill this, this gaping hole inside of you? The question is not will I look for something to satisfy this ache, the question is, where am I going to get it satisfied? And Jesus knew the answer to that. Now, there's some applications to this. And I, I, I got to working on this, and I, I, I discovered tr- two significant applications that have nothing to do with the question. <laughs> okay? So I guess we had, the, there's a rabbit jumped up here, and we want to chase it just a second. Would you give me that ministerial license, and I'll keep get you out on time. The first application from this event, this, this thing that happened here is this, that God's Word has life. Did you notice that? Jesus said to whom, and Peter said to Jesus, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And it just dawned on me, and I was looking at that, that, that what we often fail to, to, to realize is that this Word is life-giving, life-giving. Now, I want you to turn to the fourth chapter of Hebrews right quickly. And and look at verse 12 and 13. Verses 12 and 13. For the Word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joint and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from its sight. Look at that, from His sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. This word is called living word. What that says is a couple of things. It says this that that anything that is alive, it's alive because it can produce or propagate. It gives life. That is, it's alive, and the reason it is alive is because when you receive it, it gives life. Eternal life. Life that has quality and It's qualitative as well as quantitative. 1622, the Spanish galleon Toca sunk off the coast of Florida. In 1987, 365 years later, they found that galleon. And inside of the hull of that ship, they found, among treasures, they found four seeds For 365 years, those seeds had been preserved in that salt water off the coast of Florida. They took the seeds out and they put them in soil and they grew. 365 years later, they planted those seeds and the seeds grew because the seeds had life in them. This Bible, this Word, is, a, is thousands of years old and you take it into your life, you receive it and it gives life to you, eternal life. It has an energy and a power of its own. I mean, I can be um, tired or exhausted, pick up the Word of God and it energizes me. It has a life-giving power. Second application... Is this. What's this one? Religious certitude. Religious certitude, that is, confidence and certainty, is the result and the product of obedience and faith rather than obedience being the product of religious certitude. Now let me tell you what I'm trying to say here. You'd appreciate a little help what I try to say. Trying to say. That when a person is obedient, the result of his obedience is that he becomes certain it's true, rather than becoming certain it's true, then obeying. You see what I'm saying? Now look at this verse 69. Look at this. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to, to, to notice the, the order there. He's saying, we've trusted you. We, have come, we, we believe in you. We've staked our life upon you. And as a result of that, faith and obedience, the result of that is that we have come to the certitude that you are the Holy One of God. Now, most of us work from this, this angle. If I can get proof... If I can get proof, if you can show me so I can reach a a place where there is no reasonable doubt in my mind, I'll trust the Lord exactly the wrong way. It's to come to the place of faith surrender to Jesus Christ and the result of that faith is that we begin to have it validated as a result of the faith. It becomes validated after you trust. Let me give you a a, a kind of a parallel verse. It's the 7th chapter of the Gospel of John, beginning at verse 6, just across the page. Or verse 16, I'm sorry. 16 and 17. Jesus, therefore, answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but he who has sent me. Now, these guys, these uh, critics were following Jesus around. They said, Well, how do we know? How can we be sure that what you're saying is true? And Jesus said, What I've said is true, but here's the way you know it. If any man is willing to do his will... He shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak of myself. Now, you know what he's saying? He's saying, if you, with, by an act of the will, will commit your life to me, I'll validate my teaching in your life, not until. And it's obvious that Jesus lays the emphasis not upon the intellectual or speculative, but upon the choosing side of a man's nature that a man knows more by doing than by thinking, that religious certitude comes through action. So he doesn't say, I want you to discuss me or rationalize me or understand me or explain me. I want you to follow me. I want you to lay the chips out on the table and follow me. And as the result of just sheer trust, I'll confirm over and over and over in your life that what you've done is reality. This is what A. Leonard Griffith says about it. Listen, the biggest obstacle to Christian belief does not lie in some thorny theological issue, but in our timidity and indecisiveness. We cannot make up our minds to follow Christ. Christianity is a way of life. It must be seen from the inside. It must be lived in order to be understood. It cannot be borrowed secondhand from the pages of a book. But it must be discovered firsthand in a radical act of commitment to Jesus Christ. I love it. And so what I tried to share with my friend as we were talking the other night is this is that the way you come to know that this is true is to make that, take that leap of faith. I think it's a leap into faith of trusting your life to Jesus Christ. Begin to follow Him, and tomorrow it'll be, It'll start. It'll, the confirmation will start. The certitude will start. You don't want to wait till you believe it with your mind and say, yeah, that makes sense. I'll accept that intellectually. You come by faith. And the result of that faith commitment is that you come to know that He is the Son of the Most High God. Would you also go away? Lord, there ain't nowhere else to go. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for the evidence of Your presence in our heart and life the result of faith and trust. We pray that if there are those tonight who need to take that step of faith to follow Christ, they will, for I pray in His name. In the spirit of prayer, we're going to stand, and, and uh, Mark's going to lead us in a song, and uh, you'll come as God leads you to come.